substitution for the pulpit again. Thank you, Don. Did you know we're, we're a, we are a very traditional church? Conservative in most ways. But you never thought you'd see the day when we actually have lead light windows. I'm getting there. Getting there. Just a bit of housekeeping before we, uh, we go into the message this morning. Um, reminder, mobile phones, if you can turn them off, put them on silent, airplane mode, whatever it is, let's keep them quiet during the actual service. Uh, parking. Okay, we have, because we're sort of, we're trying this new system and now this building is towards the front rather than the back, just reminder that there are two uh, disabled parking over here right next to the fence. So as much as possible, let's keep those free for people like Kest and, uh, and, and the like, okay? So as much as you can, for those of you who are able and able to walk longer or farer, park them as far, as far back as you can and let visitors park towards the front. Um, toilets. Reminder for toilets. So those of you who have, aren't here normally early in the actual service, the to you need to go to the bathroom. There are bathrooms available straight into the uh, school. So these doors right behind us over here, up these stairs, are open. You can go right through and turn right down the corridor and you'll see um, toilets over there as well. And men, uh, I'm trying to organise a, uh, a get-together for the first leaders uh, meeting. So if you are in that group, um, please get a hold of me before the end of the service today. Before, not before the message, <laughs> before you end up leaving. Okay, so get a hold of me, whichever way you can, and just I just need to know uh, what times you may be available so I can organise something. Okay, fantastic. Let's look at God's Word. Uh, let's look at Matthew chapter 7 this morning, verse 15 to 20. We are nearly at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we've been in this now for a few months, and I hope it's been a, as much of a blessing to you as it's been to me. Um, God's Word is always, always uh, fruitful in our lives. And this morning we'll be looking at uh, the portion uh, of Scripture that speaks about false prophets, and that's Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, and we'll read down to verse 20. So if you have your Bibles, read with me. This morning, Matthew chapter 7, verse 15 to 20. Let's read. <clears throat> Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. Uh, let's turn to the Lord in prayer before we uh, commence this scene. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for this blessed time. I thank you for each soul that is here this morning. And I pray that your spirit will be working within each of our hearts, even now. We thank you for your precious word. We thank you that you have preserved it for us, word by word, syllable by syllable. And we thank you that we can apply each and every word to our lives. We can trust it fully because it is the very word of God. Father, we pray this morning that our hearts would be open to your truth, that we would be seeking in every way to grow 
into that very nature which you have planted within us, that we might grow into the image of our Lord and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Lord, only that we might give you the glory in our lives because you deserve it. Father, I pray that you bless me this morning as I share this word with my brethren here. And I pray that we would leave this place further challenged to live lives that are honouring to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As parents, we have a task of raising our children. Part of that task, part of that job, is to tell your, your children or teach your children about the good things that they're meant to do. Good things. In the words, being kind. Um, we teach them about genuine love. We teach them about the, the, the benefit of family around them. We teach them about the Lord, about church, about being honest, about working hard and studying at school. We teach them all these good things that we say, if you do these, there is a benefit to them because they are good in and of themselves. But the other part, the other side of that, uh, of that teaching um, includes warnings. We must also warn our children about the dangers that are present in this world. Dangers that most of us have experienced one way or the other or have seen other people go through in their lives. So we warn our children about, about things that exist in this world, um, especially at times when we aren't around to protect them. True? There are perils that they may face when we aren't there. Dangers of strangers, bad friends peer group pressure, drugs, addictions. And I can probably spend the rest of the morning explaining or describing the different types of dangers our children face, and even we as parents face. Unfortunately, um, warnings of parents don't always, aren't always taken seriously by those who need to hear them. And unfortunately, uh, those who need to emphasise those warnings, the parents themselves um, aren't emphasising them enough. If we go back to the very beginning, if we go back to the Garden of Eden and we look at an idyllic environment, perfect environment, um, where God places a perfect man and a, and, a, and a woman there and God does exactly the same thing. He warns the man and says, there's a tree in the middle of this garden. One tree is great. You can go there and eat of that tree. The other tree, I warn you about. Because the day you eat of that tree, you will die. He didn't, he didn't mince his words. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't put it in some sort of metaphorical uh, sort of way. He said to them, um, that, fruit is that fruit and that tree is dangerous. If you eat it, you will die. Did they heed his warning? No. They didn't heed his warning. And the destruction and ruin and wars and hatred and every depravity that sin brings with it over these thousands of years has come as a result or began at that very point of disobeying a warning. The state of our world now has its roots, or in this case fruits, in the garden. Adam was in fact given the responsibility to protect the garden, to protect his wife from any danger as well. He was instructed, the Bible says, to keep the garden, to keep it. Now, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, you can turn with me there if you want. Genesis 2, 
15. It says there, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Now look at that, that, that first verse in 15. He put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Now we know that, that the first job was a gardener. Some of you love gardening. Some of us are absolutely hopeless at gardening, so whatever genes that, um, that Adam had to be a good gardener have been lost on their way to reach me. That's okay. I can live with that. Some of you have very good gardeners. But he wasn't just told to, to mend the garden or tend the garden. He was told to keep it. Now, that keeping doesn't mean holding it to himself and make sure you don't lose it. The main emphasis of that word is to keep in terms of defend, to guard. Ever heard of the term a keep? Okay. A keep okay, is a central part of a castle, the most fortified, defensible portion of a castle, normally the centre. So if they ever broke through the outward walls, they had to then break into the keep as well, which would have been twice as hard to do. So when God tells Adam to keep the garden, what he is saying is you make sure you keep your eye on what's going on around here. You make sure you, you, keep, a, you keep an eye on what's coming in. And why would God do that? Do you think God maybe knew that, that Satan was already uh, plotting something? Do you think God knew in advance that Satan would do something? Well, I think he did. And I think he was uh, very wise to instruct Adam to keep the garden, but unfortunately Adam didn't keep it as he was meant to. And the first thing uh, Satan did was prey on the vulnerability of the woman. He tricked her, she fell, and instead of Adam being the one to keep and guard, protect his, his wife, uh, Adam fell in the same hole. In a church... A pastor has a responsibility to protect the flock. There are many dangers which, we, that, which would come into this church to destroy its unity, corrupt its teachings, and draw people away into false doctrine and heresies. That's present all the time. Part of my job as a pastor is to make sure and keep my eyes open as to what's happening with respect to those things. The devil, the Bible says, uses subtle techniques. He's very wise, very shifty. He makes that which is bad to look good. He puts a veneer of goodness over the, over the front of it. So at first glance, you look at it and you think, oh, that looks okay. But when you scratch a little bit deeper, you find, you find this evil intent behind it. The devil uses subtle techniques to achieve the attacks on the church. He attacks people's weaknesses and vulnerabilities. He distracts them away from the simple truth of the gospel. And then what he does is seek to cause confusion within a church. And then because of confusion, he divides it. He tries to divide it. Uh, we've often spoken about one of the tactics that Satan uses is when you have a flock of sheep, 
to draw one sheep away at a time. So when the sheep is away by themselves, away from the flock, they aren't, aren't afforded the protection of, have, of being together in the group. So when he's got them out by themselves, the wolves can easily pick, pick them off. That's how wolves do it in real life. They, they look for the weakest ones, the ones that fall behind the rest of the group, and they, they wait for a time when they can just grab them. The fact that there are so many denominations in Christianity... You have a counter? Try to count how many denominations there are in Christianity. How many sects and cults and, and, and different, uh, different organisations that, uh, that run in, in, in the, the, the big term Christianity testifies to Satan's fantastic strategy of dividing. He does it very well. But the Bible teaches us that we should beware lest Satan should get an advantage of us. That's in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. We need to beware lest Satan should seek to get an advantage of us. And it says, for we are not ignorant of his devices. But how many people are actually aware of his devices? I know pastors need to be aware of his devices and how, and how he works. But how many of us here would say they're actually aware of the different devices Satan uses to, to infiltrate and divide a church? Part of my job is also to teach about that. So in our, pa in our passage today, we're going to be learning a little bit about those techniques, what he does. In our passage today, Jesus warns believers of certain people who would masquerade as spiritual leaders. This is a, this is a, this is a, a passage about false religious teachers, false prophets, as they're called here. And they, they masquerade or they look like a spiritual leader, but inwardly their lifestyle is destructive and so is their teaching. In the days of um, where Jesus walked the earth, many of the scribes and, and what we understand as Pharisees fit this description exactly. And what they did as false teachers and false prophets is still being done today. The man doesn't change, which is, a, which is an interesting thing. Over thousands of years, there are some people in this world who actually think that man is more enlightened, that man is somehow more uh, spiritual and, and, and has reached a, a further stage in evolution. Well, apart from the evolution rubbish, man hasn't improved. We have more creative ways of killing each other. We still hate each other. We still... Um, we still do things that we're not supposed to do. And uh, as much as, we, as society tries to change laws to, to protect and to keep things all, all going, man is essentially the same. What does God's word say about these individuals though, who actually create these things? Matthew chapter 23, verse 13 says, But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Actually, turn with me there. I'd like to share with you just, just three things that these individuals do. Feeling a bit warm? Not the sermon, is it? No, no. No? Okay. <laughs> okay, Matthew chapter 23, verse 13. It says, But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering in to go in. Okay. 
These, these people fit exactly the description that Jesus was talking about. These wolves in sheep's clothing. They look like sheep. They sound like sheep. But inwardly, they have their nature isn't a sheep. Their natures are wolves. And what did these people do? Well, it says there, first of all, apart from being hypocrites, because that's a good description of a hypocrite, isn't it? A hypocrite is someone who looks one way on the outside but is actually different on the inside. That's a hypocrite. Good description of a hypocrite. But then it says that you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. So what they do, one, one danger with these people is that they stop people understanding what the truth of God is so that they can enter into the kingdom of heaven. They stop that. How do they stop it? With false teachings, false doctrines, and diverting people's attention from the basic truth, which is the gospel of Christ. They complicate it. They, they, make, it, they make it hard. They add laws that, that aren't meant to be there. And they keep people so distracted with all the other bells and whistles that, that really aren't part of the whole, uh, the whole thing that people actually miss the whole point. I, mean, I grew up in a, in a church where I'd been a member of for about 19 years and I did not understand the gospel. <laughs> Extraordinary. I did not understand the basic truth that Jesus came to die on a cross for my sins and it was through that that I received salvation. How simple is that? And yet I went to school that, that had religious classes and, and we, we learned from a we, we, we heard sermons from a priest and we, we involved ourselves in all these religious ceremonies. But after 19 years, if someone had come to me and said, do you understand what it means to be saved? Do you understand how you get to heaven? I couldn't answer them. And in fact, I'd, I'd almost assure you, if you asked the people that I know, my family, my friends that still go there, how you get into heaven, 99% of them wouldn't have a clue where to start. They'd say, guess what? You have to be a good person. And we know that isn't true. So these people shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. And it says they need to go in themselves. So they're not going in. So how on earth, if they're not going in, can they be a spiritual teacher of people who want to get in? Impossible. And finally, it says, neither suffer ye that, are, that them that are entering in to go in. So even those who are at the door, ready to open, open up, they divert them away from that and, and bind them back up into the rules and the, and the principles of this world so that they don't enter into that door. Do you remember the sermon about, you know, enter ye at the straight gate and the narrow way? Well, there, there are men in this world who would stand at that gate, at the, at the entrance of that gate, and try to divert people away in a different direction, even once they've got to the stage of reaching that gate and opening up that door. So these individuals, the Bible says, are very dangerous. Very dangerous. And there's a reason that they're dangerous. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'll explain to you why. Second Corinthians chapter 11. Let's look at verse 13 to verse 15. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, 
transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, and it's basically that means that's no surprise. Look, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose ends shall be according to their works. Did you understand that? The reason these people can put on this masquerade is that the devil himself is able to transform himself into an angel of light and himself look holy and pure and righteous. Scary, isn't it? I've lost count of the... The times I've read in history where men have seen visions of angels and these angels have come to them and said, you know, this is the new truth I am here to share with you. And as a result of that wonderful revelation, a new religion starts, which contradicts the writings of the previous one. You know, since the Bible was complete at around 100 AD, there have been numerous individuals that have come as prophets receiving special revelation directly from God, which contradicts what the Bible says, mind you. There have been men that have seen visions of angels. And I'll tell you where those visions came from. I know exactly where they came from. Because if they contradict the word of God, they're satanic in origin. Satan is able to transform himself into an angel of light. And if he's able to do that, he's able to then share a false gospel and deceive people. The Bible says here that if he's able to do it, then people are able to do it as well. The greatest danger in the Christian church today, and for Christians in general, is that sometimes the first observation of something seems harmless. It may actually look like a good idea the first time. But if it doesn't line up with what Scripture teaches... It is probably a bad idea and probably dangerous. Ever, ever heard of a Venus flytrap? Ever seen one? Hmm. What's the purpose of a Venus flytrap? It's a plant. But there aren't that many plants that actually eat animals, that eat other things. But this thing is well designed. It's colourful. It smells beautiful. And it's just waiting. And when the fly comes along and smells the odour and goes there and wants to, to eat some nectar or whatever else it is that's, uh, that, it, that's appealing to it, uh, it goes in, looks wonderful, comes in, and the, the jaws shut around it and it's trapped. Well, that's a bit like this. Because false teachers and false prophets look the part. They play the part. But there's a trap in the background and and Christians need to be aware and need to be very very careful about who they follow one of the greatest problems we have in our culture and I know the internet has some good things in it but the internet is full of bad things as well some of the problems that that I see with people who go astray is that they jump onto something called YouTube okay and YouTube has some good things in it but 95% of them are bad things and they watch videos with about you know supposed Christians who are teaching them certain things, and and because they're coming from every and any sect and cult and denomination, they're getting subtle teachings that are opposite, and they don't realise it. So we need to be careful about those things. We need to warn our children about those things. We need to warn each other. 
Bible says here, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. The main problem with the vast majority of churches today is that they have thrown out the word of God. They've thrown out the standard by which you can actually judge something. They will not study it for themselves. In addition to that, what complicates the matter even more is that there are so many translations that the majority of people do not go to church today with a Bible tucked under their arm. They allow the pastor of a church to choose from multiple translations that which he wants to choose, which fit what he wants to preach on, okay? And they can't even verify what he's actually teaching because there's such a variety. We are, we are one of the few churches, few, where the congregation come in with their own Bibles. How would you be coming into a church where I'm preaching from an NIV, someone's got a message, another one's got a TIV, another one's got a NIV, another one's got a King James? How would you even how would how would you find reading through that? Impossible. So most most pastors and, and, and churches have an overhead. And they have the, the point that he's making. Then they have the scripture verse at the bottom. And no one bothers to read or check up. Most people have actually thrown away the word of God. Most churches have thrown it away. And this aggravates the problem. Because there is no set standard by which to judge the pastor, the priest, the reverend, the bishop, whatever you want to call him, what he's teaching from the pulpit. If you cannot verify what he's teaching from a pulpit for yourself, you are in danger. Because you could be, you could be being fed lies. Unfortunately, most people just accept whatever they're taught today. They just swallow it whole, and they don't bother to check what's going on. But you can only check if you have a final authority, and the only final authority we have that hasn't changed from the beginning till now is the Word of God. Most churches don't even encourage to bring the Bible. So there is no scrutiny at all. So Jesus warned his followers, warned the disciples to beware of false teachers and false prophets. They appear like sheep, but inwardly they're wolves. We need to be able to identify them. Knowing what to look for and the great variety of teachings that come from them suggest that many people are being misled today. Turn with me to Acts chapter 20, verse 26. We'll look at a similar warning that Paul gave the Ephesians when after he'd spent some years with them. Ephesians chapter 20, verse 26. Sorry, Acts, Acts. Acts chapter 26. Good to see you've got your Bibles with you, huh? Just testing you. Acts chapter 20, verse 26. Now, I want you to be aware that this is not just unique to our time, but it's happened from the beginning. From the very first day the church started, there were already plans in place to try and destroy it. Look at what Paul says after he spent some time with the Ephesian or setting up the Ephesian church. Wherefore, verse 26, I take record to you this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers 
to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn you everyone, night and day with tears. Three years, night and day with tears, he warned them that when he left, he knew this would happen. He warned them. Who's he addressing this to? The congregation? No, he's addressing it to the leaders. He's saying, you pastors, understand one thing. When I am gone, these things will take, will take place. Take heed for yourselves first. Take heed for yourselves that you aren't drawn away and you aren't corrupted with some teaching. Then he says, take heed to all the church. Watch out for the church. Understand that they have been made, a pastor has been made the overseer of a church. The superintendent, the guardian, the guy who's meant to be there to protect the church. And Paul says the same thing, that they are to feed the church with the word of God. That's part of protecting a church. Keep them well fed so they can defend themselves. Why? Paul knew very well that when he had left, that men would come into the church bringing in false doctrines and perverse things. And Paul calls these men grievous wolves who would not spare the flock. In other words, they didn't care about the flock. They're there to consume and take as much as they possibly can. So the first danger that Paul warns about is take heed for yourselves, but take heed that there are people who are going to be coming into the church, new people who look fine, who act fine, but in the end, they've got some intention. They want they want some glory. They want to consume what you have over there. And then it says, which is an interesting one, he says, from yourselves. Look at verse 30. Also, of your own selves, within the pastors of, the, of, of Ephesus, men would arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. From the, that own, their own group, men would rise up to draw people after themselves. Their lust for power and recognition would cause them to disregard the unity and peace of the church by dividing it and enticing people to follow them. This challenge to pastors has not changed this day. In fact, we, there's more of a need for this today that we need to, be, we need to be, uh, take heed for ourselves we need to take heed for who's coming in the church and also amongst ourselves, who's beginning to look a little bit frayed at the edges and starting to get swayed into something else. We have seen many pastors who have fallen from the by using the Bible as, as their foundation to using programs of this world. There are many examples where pastors um, have had to be careful of things that have entered the church. There are so many ways the devil has to actually divide and conquer a church. Um, in, um, I've only been a pastor for eight years, but I've been a, a, a Christian for longer than that. But the things that I've seen are too numerous to, to actually mention here about the ways... The devil tries to divide a church. I've seen pastors who have sought to change the emphasis of, from Bible believing to 
world to believe in and, and latest philosophy and new age teaching. I've seen people who have spent time and energy arguing about paint colour, chairs, mats, formats, time, dress codes, food, songs, preaching styles, length, loudness, softness, topics, children, and so on and so on and so on. Where those topics become so important to them that they're almost happy to divide a church because of them. We know. We, we often talk about the stories of churches being split by the colours of carpets and, and things of that nature. There have been people in our own church who have come in with various doctrines, hobby horses, attitudes, that would have been destructive if allowed to simply take their course. Today we see pastors who were once fundamental in their teaching turning to modern programs and church growth programs and promising the world to the congregation rather than simply telling them the truth of God. There are many things that the devil uses to try to divide a church. And unfortunately, even from among themselves, Paul says men would arise to mislead people. Let's look at some of the other things that the devil does through these individuals. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. The, the, the challenge we have today, because we are living in what are, what's called the latter days, okay? They're definitely latter than 2,000 years ago, that's for sure. Today is closer to the return of Jesus than it was 100 years ago or 200 years ago. We are living in the last or latter days. And this is the challenge that we have as Christians and as pastors. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 says, This know also... In the last days, perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, continent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures rather more than lovers of God having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. Now, our world is filled with these type of people. These type of people who actually think they're good, who actually think that they're moral in their, in their standing, but, but portray most of these characteristics. They may belong to a denomination. They may call themselves Christians. They may call themselves a whole range of things. And they say they're living a certain life. But yet they, they fall into this category over here. And Paul says, from such, turn away. There is a form of godliness there, but there isn't godliness at all. What makes the problem worse, because we are living in this generation of people who are selfish, in a nutshell. What makes it worse is that those who would call themselves teachers in our generation are not teachers at all. There are more demonic doctrines in our day than any day before. Instead of doing the things that God has asked, they do things that are different. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1.
Paul once again writes to Timothy, a young pastor, to warn him about the, what would be coming. And it says now this in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times shall some depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meat, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. Who are these people? It's a false teachers. Because if they weren't teachers, they wouldn't be commanding everyone to do one thing or the other. So the warning is, apart from us being in a generation that is inherently selfish, we have these people over here who call themselves spiritual leaders, who set themselves up as such, who are teaching lies and heresies, speaking lies in hypocrisy and having been seduced by the Bible says spirits. Paul says, uh, sorry, Peter says the same thing. You don't have to turn with me there. But Second Peter chapter two verse one says, "But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you." who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that brought them, that, sorry, bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of, and through covetousness shall they with feign words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. Paul tells of a rising of false teachers. And he, he actually tells us in that passage some of the methods they actually use, and we'll look at those in a, in, a, in a minute. John says the same thing. John says in 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit. Don't believe every spirit that comes to you and says, this is a wonderful teaching, or this is good, or this is fine. Don't believe them. It says, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets got out into the world. John warns us about false teachers going into the world. How do you test them, though? You test them by the word of God. You can't test them with your feelings, which most people think is a good judge of whether something's right or wrong. You notice that? If it feels right, it's got to be right. Wrong. If it feels right, it doesn't necessarily mean it's right. It's the word of God that tells you whether it is right or wrong. Feelings should always follow the truth, not go before it. Jesus tells in the last portion of that uh, of chapter 7, verse 16 to 20, You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bear, bringeth forth good fruit. But a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. How do we identify false prophets and false teachers? Well, fruit's an interesting thing, isn't it? Fruit doesn't show up straight away, does it? You plant the seed, tree begins to grow, the leaves come on the tree, it may take a while, but the fruit may come up eventually. Eh? So if we're testing by the fruit, you aren't going to necessarily get the result or the determination straight away. It means you need to take time to check the fruit because the fruit may come years later. It may not be evident up front. 
So you need to be checking all the way through. You know, there are some, there are some plants, some trees, that you recognise already what the tree is. There are some that, that aren't that recognisable. And it's only until the fruit comes out do you actually recognise what type of fruit that actually is. You may begin to see the fruit growing and think, oh, I recognise what that fruit is. It's this type of fruit, if you're good enough. But to be good enough, you have to be, you have to know what the, what the good tree and the bad tree looks like. That's why it's so important that we familiarise ourselves with the word of God. But what is in the heart eventually comes out. Eventually it will. So whether they, whether they, they cover it up for a time and, and deceive people, but it will eventually come out. So false teachers and prophets are often betrayed by their greediness, which is manifested by lavish lifestyles, by their immorality, which is manifested by adulterous relationships, or by their lust for power, manifested by them building a religious empire. Given time, the true character of a false prophet will be exposed by the fruit of their life. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. This is an easy one for you. This is an easy way to determine what type of fruit the person is, is building, okay, or producing. Because in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, it says, Now the works of the flesh are manifest. Manifest? Obvious. Alright? These are obvious fruits. That if they show adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in the past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now those things, if they're portrayed already, if they're evident already in, in a person who's actually teaching from, from the front, then already you've got... They're manifest. They're obvious. So if those things are present, you've already, you've already pretty much seen the fruit already because they're the fruits of the flesh. But, it says, the fruit of the Spirit, this is the opposite, is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. You see those things in a person's life, you begin to say, okay, that tree is looking different now. That's a different tree. They're two very different trees we've got happening over here. The question we got sometimes, or the problem we have, is that in, in, in our eyes, it looks like it's, it's, it's two, tree, two trees joined up sometimes, so they've got a bit of each. But the tree will eventually manifest itself completely. They're the basics, okay? Go back to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, though. And I'll, I'm going to share with you... Um, Three more quick points about what deceptive teachers do. Second Peter, chapter two, verse one. 
Now, Peter says here, but there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. See, privily? What does that mean? Secretly. By stealth. They work in the background. They, they're doing things, manipulating things. They're, they're conniving. They're, they're setting up people against each other. They're working in ways that are private and secret. They don't just tell it as it is. You don't know much about them. You don't know what really is their, is their position, a lot of things. So they'll, they'll, when, you, when you try to pin them on something, they'll jump from here to there and everywhere. Their ministries are shrouded in secrecy. You don't know what's going on in the background. And there seem to be a lot of cover-ups and meetings going on that most people aren't even aware of. One of the things that opened up my eyes, that, that really disappointed me with, uh, you've heard of the purpose-driven life, haven't you? Okay. Um, there is a purpose-driven church as well. There's a second book to that. Um, if you've read both of those books, you'll understand that one of the... One of the the, the things that they do, okay, is to make the church, the whole church, run through the purpose-driven life. So the goal is to get everyone involved in the purpose-driven life. Get everyone in the program, right? So once you're in the program, there may be some that don't like it. Maybe some that say, hang on a sec, this is not scriptural here. I'm not, I'm not too happy about this. Um, one of the techniques that they recommend is to earmark certain people and to slowly work them out of the church. If they don't fit that particular program, if they're not going to run with the program, then then you earmark them as a pastor and you work to get them out. You like that? That's a wonderful, wonderful thing. False prophets and teachers often work in secret. They're doing things by stealth. They try to introduce things by stealth into the church without people recognising it. Turn with me in a second. We'll go, to, go to verse 3. The next thing they do, it says there, and through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. Isn't that interesting? Through covetousness they shall with feigned words make merchandise. Yeah. People have a problem with coveting in our society, do they not? Our whole marketing, the whole marketing in our society is actually works around coveting. They, they entice you to want to, to desire something that someone else has actually got. That's basically how marketing works. I've got this, look what it's done for me and I'm so wonderful and now I've got so many friends and you know you should have one as well. Oh, well, actually, I want some extra friends. I'm going to get one of those things too. It works around the same principle. But in the church, okay, in the, in Christ, within Christianity, there are teachers who use people's weakness for coveting to come to church, to get them in the church, to actually entice them to want more. I don't know how many times I've heard about you know the prosperity preaching and all that all that, that stuff. 
the health and wealth and, and all the sort of stuff. So what they do is they spend most of the time behind a microphone telling people how wonderful Christianity is, huh? how, how you can become rich through it, that God wants to bless you with so much money because look at me. Look, I'm, I'm wearing a $1,000 Armani suit and I'm driving the latest car. See, if it works for me, it must work for you as well. huh? That God wants to bless you with riches. We'd want to explain that to the Apostle Paul and Peter and, and all the apostles that lost their lives and got burned at the stake and thrown to the lions and everything else. But it doesn't matter. They're going to sell you a story because they want to draw you in and they want to use your covetousness against you. So people think, well, I want some of that. So they sign up to Christianity. Because with Christianity, I'm never going to get sick. I'm going to be rich. I'm going to have friends. I'm going to have everything there is to have. So it says here, they through covetousness shall with feigned words, shifty, not sincere, they use those words to draw people in. And I had Francis, I'm not, they're not here today. It was interesting. There was, a, there was a particular fellow, that a pastor, that started in the a Pentecostal movement that's gone off on his own now, NTM. I'm not sure if you've heard of Neil, Tim, Neil Thomas Ministries. Biggest shyster you'd probably ever see. I'm not scared to say it. He draws people in, then gets them to sign over $30,000 checks to him so that he can build his church. Yeah, they got caught a few years ago. They burnt down the building because it wasn't big enough for them. Um, um, but funnily enough, they forgot to pay their insurance so they didn't get paid out. And they got caught out too. There are many who would seek to draw people into their churches to make merchandise of them. It's a business. Unfortunately, too many churches are running businesses today. And they're using people covetousness to draw, to, to draw them in and then take advantage of them. And they use insincere words, promising them things that the word of God does not promise. And they know it very well, but still they do it. The practice is very common today. Our Christian bookshops, they two that we really that are common, the word and, and Kurong, are filled with books of this type. How to become successful with wealth and health and and uh, and fulfilling your potential and your career and everything else that God wants you to have. They entice people with using feigned words which are insincere and artificial. And they make money hand over fist through it. They make merchandise out of people that they claim to serve. They find unique and novel ways to extract money from people. Incredible ways of doing it. They make profit on all they do and they turn the ministry into a commercial business. Rather than preparing people for what really is to come. You see, the Bible teaches that, Yea, in all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That's a bit of a different, one of those things they, they might not mention too often in their books. And 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13 says, But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And, and as, as Peter says, And through covetous shall they use feigned words to make merchandise of you. They twist the scripture. They deceive. They deceive themselves, but they use deception. That's the third one. Okay? They twist the scripture to support a message that, that, that Satan has produced. 
They use people's doctrines rather than God's doctrines. But unfortunately, the Bible says, Galatians, But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you that, than you have received, let him be accursed. They're not light words that Paul uses for people that preach a false gospel. They're quite strong. And men who would seek to teach the word of God and teach it falsely are under the greatest condemnation because they are the ones who lead the people astray. You notice how it says that these, these are the people that, that, are, that will receive the greatest damning? It's because whoever's standing behind there, okay, as much as they're the servants of all, have the greatest influence over all. You listen to the words that I speak every week. Every, every. Other people speak some words too. But I have, I'm in a position, not just of responsibility, but of influence. So whenever a man enters into a position of responsibility and authority and leadership in the church, that person has greater influence of either helping people to grow in Christ or as the Pharisees were doing, stopping them from entering into the gates of heaven. And they will have to answer for their words. And so will I. Now, the Lord said that um, in the Gospel of John, he said, Father, I have not lost any that you've given me. Yeah? Jesus was a perfect shepherd. He knew exactly what to do to protect his sheep. Now, I can't say the same. I cannot say the same. I cannot say that every man, woman and child the Lord has given me in this church or has put under my care and protection, I have been able to keep. But I'll have to pay for that one day. But for the moment, I'll do my best. The Lord knows my weaknesses, but he also gives grace. Let me close. You aren't called to know a man's heart. You don't know people's hearts. If a man stands behind a pulpit or a person writes a book and you read it, you aren't to know their heart. You can't. Only God can know their heart and they will know their own heart. What we are called is to be fruit inspectors. You like that? I like that. I borrowed that from someone else. They're called to be fruit inspectors. The fruit of a person's life will eventually come out, and soon enough. The Bible says we had to watch out for wolves. And hopefully I've given you some tools and some things to watch out for today. Unfortunately, the Lord says in Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I have rejected thee. Our desire should be for the truth. The truth should never be compromised because of feelings or emotions or anything else. The truth is the truth regardless of, of which way you look at it and we should always be defending the truth. Are we equipped to discern the wolf from the sheep? 
I pray this morning that we are more equipped than what we were when we came in. I want to remind you of something, though. The Bible says, if you are unsaved this morning, the Bible says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it, ab it abideth alone, but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. In order to enter the kingdom of God, you must die. Die to yourself. That's what baptism is a picture of, that we have died and that we have now a new life in Christ. We find ourselves in him. And that continues because the Lord says, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. We need to understand today, regardless of whether it's me or you or anyone, we cannot produce fruit, good fruit in our lives unless we first die to ourselves and the Lord plants us and, and grows us and we can't, grow, we can't produce fruit unless we are in Christ every day. Walk in him and beware of false doctrine. God bless you.